Hi, my name is Dr. Sarah Adams. I am a board-certified pediatrician, but I'm not your pediatrician. Feel free to use my podcast as helpful information, but in no way do I intend my podcast to replace the advice of your physician. Your physician knows you and is in the best position to provide medical advice. Hello, and welcome to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. Today, my guest is Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter. Dr. Utter is a licensed clinical psychologist and specializes in working with individuals diagnosed with both substance use disorders as well as severe mental illness. Today, we're going to be talking about the correct manner to communicate with your teen or preteen. Every day in my office, I'm either talking to a patient or a parent on how to effectively help and talk to each other. Today, when I spoke to a patient, they actually said to me, they don't feel like my parent understands. And in another visit, I had a parent who said, I just don't know how to talk to them. Sometimes they just walk in the door and as soon as I ask them a question, everything's either fine or they really would rather not talk to me at all. So this is such an important topic, and I really appreciate the time that Dr. Utter is taking to really help us be better. Maybe we'll learn how to communicate better with anyone, but especially our teens and preteens. So thank you so much, Dr. Utter, for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Sarah. I appreciate it. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and the work that you do and how you became passionate about knowing the importance of communicating with our teens and preteens? Yeah. So as you mentioned, I am a licensed clinical psychologist in Pennsylvania. And my, I specialize in working with folks who have what we call co-occurring or dual diagnoses. And my specialty is an individual who has any type of substance use disorder, like opioid use disorder, stimulant use disorder, alcohol use disorder, for example, and what we refer to as a severe mental illness. So someone who may have you know, bipolar, major depressive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. So I specialize in working with individuals who have both happening at the same time. So I, I work on diagnosing them, making sure they have the appropriate diagnosis, and then also treating them. Um, it was no accident that I got into this field. Um, I I worked very hard not to. Uh, my first go around, believe it or not, Dr. Sarah, was in radio. So I wow. actually... I sold radio advertising for almost a decade. And then once I kind of got older and a little bit more mature and ready to deal with my own stuff, I decided to pursue a career in psychology. Both my parents struggled with addiction. My mom struggled with addiction and mental illness. So, um, you know, coming full circle, even though I did everything I could not to, has been an interesting journey. And it's really been interesting because along the way, I've done significant amount of work with adolescents. And, you, and in psychology... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. sorry. Go Keep ahead. going. And in psychology, um, and it's so funny, I was just talking to a family um, last week, adolescents, the way we define it, I don't know if it's the same for you, but it's... Um, 
adolescence, we look at prepubescence. So somewhere around, you know, nine, 10, all the way through to actually your early 20s. Do you define it that same way? I do. I do. In fact, our producer today, just before we started, even asked me, he said, how you know, how long do you continue to see patients? And I do see up to age 21, because that young adult slash adolescent is, uh, they're still, they're, they're still developing, the brain is changing. And even the brain is continuing to form, you know, um, synapses and, you know, become fully developed even after 21, up to 25, 26, right? Yeah, prefrontal cortex. I talk about that all the time, the <laughs> development of of the prefrontal cortex and executive function. And that's what makes that's what makes um parents, I think, um, even myself included, think that my kid is from another planet sometimes because right. um the impulsivity and you know, they know the difference between right and wrong because we do a great job of of trying to explain what's right and what's wrong, but What's really hard is controlling your impulses, your judgment, your decision-making, and that prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain right behind the eyeballs, isn't fully developed, and and it's what's responsible for all of that. So um, that's why that time period, all the way, like you said, until you're about 25, it's such a sensitive developmental period because they're still learning to navigate. Knowing the difference between right, right and wrong is, is different than um, giving somebody the opportunity to make mistakes so that their brain can continue to develop and their neurons get stronger and the synapses um, get more prevalent. So um, yeah, I don't know how we got onto this, but... Um, Absolutely. Well, you were talking about how you became passionate and extending your all the work that you've done so far into helping parents or any caregiver really communicate because they they are like being from another planet I hate to say because you just and we've all been there but I think sometimes we even though we say I've been there I understand but do we really remember everything and um, I think I think it's, and plus, no one can argue that times are very different than even when you were an adolescent and especially when I was. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. What What is that saying, Dr. Sarah? It's um, you look at life through rose-colored glasses. Yes. And I think something happens to us as a, as parents or caregivers. We did go through it and we probably felt the same way with a lot of our parents, but as we got older, the lens changed, our 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 um, perspective changed, and then when you become a parent, you're responsible for this life, and you want to do everything right to help your child. And sometimes, in in our will and our desire to help our children, we can inadvertently create more of that dissension between yourself and and your child, because we want to do so well that we forget how to be real. Absolutely. And I think that's part of it. Yeah. I, I agree with you 100%. Because what I often find, and I've done this too, is when we do get an opportunity where our, our child comes to us with a concern, what do we typically do? We either say, you're fine, it's okay, or you try to fix it, 
or, you know, you tried to make little of it, but is that really helpful? That just saying you're fine, you're okay. It's not helpful. And I try to tell parents in my office, I'm sure you've been in a situation where you went to somebody to express your concerns or needs and they said, you're okay. And I wish that it was that easy and you could say, okay, yeah, I'm okay. It's a, it's all good now, you know, but it isn't. So I kind of joke with parents and say, you know, put yourself in their shoes and realize, but it's, it's a, a knee jerk reaction to say, you're okay. I even found myself saying it to my son, you know, who's 25, just recently he called and was explaining a situation he was on. And I said, you're going to be okay. And I was like, or it's going to be okay. And I was like, oh, there, I just did it. What I tell people, you know, to be aware of. And I've said this before on my podcast, and I'm going to quote um, another pediatrician that is a colleague of mine, Dr. Michelle Levitt. She has said, kids just want to be seen, heard, and feel safe. And if we remind each other about that, then it's kind of like, you can respond and you don't have to go into a big lecture with them, but you can respond in a different way that makes them understand that you hear them. I understand what you're saying. Maybe share an experience where you've been in the same situation and then give the advice because you need to kind of draw them in before otherwise they just think you're lecturing them. You don't care or you're trying to make little of it, which is, you know, we don't do that on purpose. It just, it's like I said, a knee jerk, right? Oh, absolutely. And we, and I think we forget that we've, we've been there before. Um, so when you said to your son, perfect example, who's 25, you're going to be fine. He, he was definitely going to be fine and you knew it, but he didn't feel it and he didn't know it. So they kind of just need to be able to, you know, talk it out and feel like they're being heard because, because we've been there, we know that, yeah, you're going to be fine. Like this is all going to work out. But a lot of the times that that can come off as being dismissive of them or you're just, like you said, you're just trying to like get rid of me because you're, you're doing something else or you have to do something else or you're distracted by something else. Cause as parents, we're definitely distracted a lot. And, and with the pandemic, you know, I work from home a lot and I'm, I'm always physically there, but sometimes I'm distracted because I'm trying to work or do something else. And I, I don't want to come off like I'm dismissive because I know they're going to be okay, but they don't know they're going to be okay. And I think that's the part, even with the simplest of things that we, that we often overlook. Um, so I totally, I totally agree. And, and the, to take it to the next level, um, it's also the difficult topics that I really think we as parents and caregivers get afraid of or shy away from because we're afraid that if we show or use a personal experience that doesn't put us or paint us in this good light, that that's bad for our kids. You know, we don't want to tell our kids that we smoked pot. We don't want to tell our kids that we were drinking, you know, at a keg party in the middle of the woods when we were 16 and 17, right? Because that's what we were doing. Um, because then that will, you know, they'll look at me differently and then think maybe that they can do that right. or whatever, whatever we think. We're not giving but, them permission. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like we're not giving you the green light, buddy. I'm just trying to tell you that there's, there's consequences and there's risks involved in that. And my parents, um, even though they struggle with addiction and, and they, you know, they weren't, you know, whatever a perfect parent is because that doesn't exist, but they weren't, you know, they weren't a parents. Right. Um, and sometimes they weren't even good enough parents. Like we say in psychology, you just have to be good enough. Um, they were really excellent at using themselves and sharing real examples of mistakes that they made to teach me, um, life lessons. And I never felt lectured. And that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. I felt, um, I actually felt looking back, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know this nomenclature or think about it as a kid, but I almost felt, um, privileged in a way to have them trust me so much to kind of tell me some things that were bad about them and unsafe about them and scary about them um, as a way to educate me because it helped. And I played those tapes um, time and time again when my parents would tell me about specifically drugs and alcohol and explaining um, genetic predisposition to me starting at age six um, at a level that I could understand all throughout my life. Um, So those real conversations really resonated with me and helped me. They didn't hurt me. So I think if I'm going to give advice or, or it, cause I do it, I've done it with my kids. I have a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old and I already started to talk is just to not feel like you, you can't show your kids that you're human and that you're real and that you've made mistakes. Well, and I think it helps them understand that we're all vulnerable. We all have challenges. And if they see us as caretakers, as being vulnerable too, then I think they're going to open up more and be able to accept the advice, so to speak, that we offer, because it almost makes us sound a little more credible if we share the experience versus if you're just lecturing them or telling them what to do, because it is our nature to just want to fix them and make it all right. But not everything, we're not always going to be able to fix everything. So vulnerability, resilience, experience, and learning from others, it's, it's priceless, really. And let's face it, it this, is, this world right now is pretty difficult to navigate through. And I want to flip that a little bit, too, because I think sometimes preteens and teens are afraid to come to their parents because they're worried about getting in trouble. They're worried about the judgment that might come with it. They or do they won't love me if they know I've made mistakes. And also I think sometimes they resist talking to their parents because they're afraid to worry them. And so I think what advice would you give parents in that aspect so that they know, look, um, I'm, I'm here for you. I'll give an example. I, I used to, we used to have like kind of a sign at my house when my kids would start to tell me something that I knew was uncomfortable, but I was very thankful that they were coming to tell me this. And I would kind of, as a way for me to regroup and kind of calm down, I'd put my 
fingers in my ear and I'd go, la, 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 you know, and they would kind of chuckle a little bit. But then I took a deep breath and I really listened. And I remember there would be situations where I would say, I, if you find yourself in a situation, I want to be your go-to and we're going to talk about it. So it wasn't that I didn't help them be responsible or, you know, be responsible for the actions that they took, but I was open to receive what they were going to tell me. They're probably listening to this right now, <laughs> Jerry Lennon saying, she wasn't like that at all, <laughs> but you know what I'm trying to get at. So how do we yeah. help parents do that? Because that's hard. It's uncomfortable sometimes to, to hear your child tell you something that maybe you don't want to hear. But we want to be their their counselor, their therapist, their teacher. And I'm not saying that as parents, you're licensed. And if if it is a situation, I say this also to parents, if it's if there are certain situations where it goes beyond what you can help them with, but you should be their first stop. Absolutely. And it's about it's about making them feel comfortable, comfortable enough to to confide in you about things that they did wrong. So I think a good, a good piece, and I use this on my kids because this is what was told to me. Um, so I have a 10 year old boy, a seven year old girl, and I have a 27 year old sister that I raised since she was 10. So I did the terrible teen stuff once and I'm, pre- and I know I have to do it two more times, but I remember specifically my mom. Um, when I got into those middle school years and those teenage years where I wanted to have more freedom and I wanted to be out, this is before cell phones. So I wanted to be out and I wanted to do more things. My mom would say to me, make sure you have enough change on you for the payphone, because if you get in trouble, my first, I don't care if you get in trouble. She said, I, you need, I need to be your first phone call. We'll talk later about what it is, you know, that, that we need to fix or not fix, but we need to work on that, that you, that you maybe made a poor decision about, but in the moment, don't worry about me being mad or angry, reach out to me right away. So I remember one time, you know, teens in high school, you know, people were hanging out in the woods. Um, and that's what we did in Philadelphia. We would find woods and people would get a keg and everyone would drink. And I swear, Dr. Sher, I'm not lying when I tell you this. I didn't partake. I really didn't because I was so afraid to get addicted because of my parents. But I, all my friends drank and they would call me Sister Jerry like I was a nun because I was raised Catholic and they would make fun of me, but whatever. But I'd be hanging out with them, which means if the cops come, I'm going down. So the cops came. Guilt by and association. Guilt by association. So it was like, it didn't matter if I was drinking or not. And they, you know, they line everyone up and, you know, they were going to, you know, write citations and people were going to get in trouble. And I was scared and I was so scared, but not so scared to where I couldn't call my mom because I remembered my mom saying that to me time and time again. So she made it to where she was still able to be my parent and say, after the fact, what you did wasn't cool here's why Jerry Lynn, like, you know, X, Y, and Z let's, let's evaluate it and talk about it. But I wasn't so scared 
to where I couldn't call her when I needed her the most. And I gave the same advice to my sister when she got older and the, the people started to drink. And I said, if people are drinking too much before Uber and Lyft, people are drinking too much. I don't want you to drive your car. Call me. And, and she did. And then of course we talked about it later, but I think having, it's such a fine line because we want to be real and we want to talk to them and we want them to feel comfortable, but we still have to be a parent because some parents will say to me, well, it's not my job to be their friend. We're not asking you to be their friend by being real. right? Right. So I think, I don't know what your experience is, is with that or what feedback you've gotten from parents, but I think that's part of the fear is they can't see me as their friend. So I'm not going to condone that. And I don't think it's condoning it, but I think there's a line there. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Absolutely. I think that there is a fine line and even sometimes it can be different with each parent. I know in my experience with our home and I know my boys, if they were here, they would agree that we look back a lot of times at our parenting then, and my husband would say, well, she was always their friend and I was the parent. And I said, oh no, I disciplined too, but I disciplined to teach. It wasn't just about punishment. It was about teaching. It was about knowing that if they needed me, I would be there, but I still held them accountable. And That was, I think, for me, the difference. And I try to share that with families because it is very uncomfortable to think that your precious child would ever do anything wrong and or would do anything maybe you've done in the past or even their friends because it doesn't make them bad or good. There's no title to it. It's just that... It's amazing how who they're surrounded by can make such a big difference. And they could be great kids. I mean, we're talking about great kids who at any point can make a mistake. And it's, again, going back to what we were talking about in the beginning, and that is because they're still learning and developing and growing. And that's our job doesn't end when, you know, they reach those teenage years. That's when we need to be more present. No, absolutely. I, as you were talking, um, I was just thinking about, you know, how, how parents are still so fearful to talk to their teenagers. It's, it's like we do good up until, is it puberty or is it like up until that hormone surge happens? Um, I feel like developmentally that that like 12, 13 and on kind of become really challenging for for a lot of parents. I remember myself included when it came, you know, when it came to to, you know, taking on and and, and raising my my sister. And I see it now um, with my son who who's 10. So we're we're getting ready for middle school next year. And what has been so hard for me is like, I sit back and I observe, right? I'm a psychologist, so I can't help it. But I'm also an Italian mother, which is like not, that is not, not, not a healthy mix at all. I love it. Um, It's a terrible mix. And I want to get in there um, and I want to kind of like save him from certain things, right? Like 
kids that are being jerks. And my job, right, as as a as a parent, but also as a psychologist, I know I have to empower my kid to stand up for himself with no matter what the circumstances, because A, I can't be there all the time. Right. And B, he has to, but how do you empower a kid? So what do I keep going back to? I keep going back to two things. One is is building their self-confidence in a realistic way. So making him feel worth it and 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 like he's a he's a he's a good kid with with a good head on his shoulders that can that cannot you know play follow the leader that can be the leader so self-concept and self-esteem and the other thing is learn like he's learning how to just speak up for himself and to advocate for himself in every capacity with teachers with um you know with other kids and just talking about it causes me anxiety because I'm reaching that point now because he's not with me all the time. Like he's, he wants to be with, and it's, and it's a lot. Um, So I'm just wondering like how you feel or how you've managed that with your own kids. And then what advice you would give, you know, um, you know, people like myself developmentally with where my kids are. I think communication is really the key. And starting at that age or even younger with that approach to letting them feel safe. So again, going back to seen, heard, and feeling safe, I've used that a lot. And that is, I will say things like, I hear you, or I see what's going on, or I understand. And then sharing an experience and then giving some advice, so to speak, or giving them some ways that they can take a challenge and make it better. But Mm -hmm. if you're also looking at prevention, which is where I think you're going with this, it also comes down to communication because you want them to know that you're always there for them. And I think But at the same time, like we're like a safety net. And at the same time, though, we want to, we want them to launch and to grow. I will share my own personal experience. I loved my parents. They were, they were amazing. But what I have learned more as an adult about my childhood is that they were always fixing everything. They were always coming to my aid. They were always making things right. Now I was still responsible and held accountable. However, they managed to, you know, they just wanted to help me in every aspect. So what happened is I didn't become resilient or as resilient as I really think I could be. And just being aware of that has helped me as a parent to realize sometimes it might just be that they have to experience a little bit and that's where the educational moment comes in. I also think that we have to be in tune to just their body language, the way that they talk when they come in the room. Because many times they're not going to say, this person was mean to me today. But you notice that their head is hanging down or they seem sluggish or they definitely don't want to talk about what happened at school, which maybe they usually come out So if you start to see differences, that might be a sign that something is going on. And you don't want to be like, you know, 
poking and prodding at them. But the idea is that even before that happens, just communicating and say, hey, have a great day at school, um, you know, and opening up about, tell me about your friends. Tell me about the people you hang out. How do you like your teacher? And maybe I'm saying it kind of in a way that sounds annoying and nagging, but it's, it's a, that's a hard road to navigate. And I try my best to explain to parents that it really, all we have to do is love them and listen. And if we do that, we're going to see where, where we can help be that net, but then Mm -hmm. throw them back in instead of just holding on to them and, you know, making everything perfect. My husband always had a great phrase and he would say, so what are you going to do about it? And me, I wanted to be like, we should fix it, you know? And he's like, no, let them think even at that age, the younger age, what do we think? You know, how would you like to handle this? And this way they know, hey, they're listening to me and are want to mutually help me get through this. So we we tended to use that phrase a lot. So what are you going to do about it? What do you want to do about it? I think I think that's I think that's great because I as you're as you're talking to me, I'm listening and I'm taking in what you're saying and I'm trying to think of you know, instances or, you know, or families I've worked with or kids that I've worked with and affect what, you know, nonverbals are so I can tell in 30 seconds what's going on with my kids when they when they walk through the door, whether it's from a game or whether it's from school. And I don't necessarily I have to check myself because the Italian mom comes out, (laughs) but sometimes I don't jump. Sometimes I'm not jumping and I'm not saying, hey, what happened today in school Um, or what's going on? Or you don't seem like yourself. Sometimes what I do is I'll just say, hey, you know, how, you know, I'll say, how was everything? No, and I'm going to get the shutdown. Right. And then I'll follow it up by saying, we don't have to talk about it now. Whenever you're ready, I'm here. Now, what do you want for dinner? Now, And then nine times out of 10, what my oldest does is it'll be 930, 10 o'clock at night. The house gets quiet. And he like, I'm an old lady. So I go up in my room, I'll go up in my room early. And I try to like, you know, I want to watch my terrible, you know, reality TV. That's what I use to decompress. And he'll come in. We sound a lot alike, by the way. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) But that's when it starts. It'll, he'll come next to me. And then that's when he'll tell me when every, when, when there's no other kid around or, you know, and then that's when he'll come and he'll tell me because earlier in the day I knew, and I said, we don't have to talk about it now. Or, or whenever, whenever you're ready, I'm here, you know, I'm here to talk to you and we can talk about it whenever you're ready. So I kind of give that, I give him the autonomy and also the the power really to, to decide what it is that he, you know, when he's ready. And when I take that approach, I get more. And then when I, when I do the other approach, which is, so tell me about your day, even though sometimes that it's great to ask an open-ended question. Tell me about your day because then they have to tell you something, right? Like sometimes I'll, you know, tell me, tell me what you did in art class or tell me how gym was today. Then they have to say, well, in gym class, I, we played um, a mind, you know, some type of, of game, basketball, whatever. Um, and it, it shuts them down from saying, oh, it was fine or I was okay. Cause you're being specific about like, I need, right. But um, sometimes if I wait and I just, I, I give them the carrot and I say, we don't have to talk about it now. We, I know something's up, but we could talk about it later. I won't be mad. 
then I, I tend to get a little bit further with my with my own kids that way. Um, but sometimes I can't help myself and I make a mistake because I, I don't like what's happening and I push. And sometimes when I push, um, it doesn't work out the way that I that I hope that it will. And I'm going to take that one step further. When they do come and start talking, listen. Because I know I always have to work on that, is just to listen. Instead of right away trying to give it, you know, tell them what you think, what's on your mind and what you think they should do. Just just listen and make sure that they've, and might maybe even say, is there anything else? You know, so that they know that you're not going to just jump right in and and tell them what to do. And so That's great advice. That is great. That's really good advice cuz I think I'm I'm good at the first part sometimes, you know, and like full disclosure here like I was trained on all this, you know, you know, developmentally, I know I know what stage of development he's at, so but it's so hard when you're a parent yes. and it's also hard when you're trying to implement this, right? Because you see somebody who you know is in pain or who you know is upset. And the first thing they teach us when we go to school, your job is not to fix people. And I'm like, okay, I can apply that to people. I can apply that to patients sometimes, but this is my baby. Like this is my kid. So how do you not want to fix? And I, and I even say to my husband, I grew up in Philly, really tough neighborhood. My parents, you know, didn't have the they had some great parenting strategies where I think they were ahead of their time. And some of their parenting strategies weren't that great. Perfect example was when I was a young girl, um, I was bullied a lot. There was a lot of girls that would, they would always want to physically fight. You know, they oh wanted my. to fight. Yeah. And there was a lot of that in the neighborhood. I, I grew up in a rough neighborhood. It was the, it was the, um, Port Richmond, Kensington section. I grew up in the, of, of Philadelphia for a while and I was young and I kept getting, you know, hit. And I kept getting beat up. And my father turned around to me and he said, listen, I'm going to teach you how to hold your hands. And he taught me and he said, and next time, you know, we'll, we'll call her Jen. Next time Jen puts her hands on you, you're going to take care of business because if you don't, I'm not letting you back in the house. So I'm not saying <laughs> it's that not that funny, was, but it's funny now. Right. But I look back and I'm like, it, you know, but it kind of and I'm not giving this advice and I don't think that was the best approach, but it did create that resilience because he said, you have to figure this out. And because of where we live and because I was getting physically assaulted first, he said, you have to learn how to pick up for yourself because Jerry Lynn, I can't be there every time. Um, so I guess, you know, in the point of and how I got there was we can't fix it. And, and you're right, we can't be there all the time. So I think the other piece of great advice is listening mm -hmm. instead of jumping and saying, hey, well, this is what you're going to do, or this is what you should do next time so-and-so does this. Um, and almost doing an exercise that's like, well, let's talk about how you think you should handle it. Like, right. what, what are you going to do? I really like that. I think that that's I, I think I need to do a better job of that and letting them kind of think through how they're going to handle it. Now, granted, sometimes they may not have any ideas and they'll say, I no. don't know. That's why I'm talking to you. Right. Right. But sometimes if you just, and, and you can say, there's no wrong answer. No. Just tell me what you think you should do. Um, that could be really insightful and really tell you where they are with themselves and what they think that they're capable of. Number one or number two, they just genuinely may not know because they've they've never been faced with this challenge before. 
And and that's where maybe sharing an experience, you get an opportunity to say, I have. And maybe as parents, we haven't been faced with that challenge, but we can still say, wow, that must have been so hard for you. And again, they feel like, okay, she heard me, you know, she, she, she's listening or he, you know, to what I'm doing. I often say to families that feelings aren't right or wrong. It's what we do and how we respond to them. But then I sometimes in more significant cases, backtrack it to that cognitive behavior model where we talk about what was the thought that led to those feelings that then leads to the action. But I mention this not to get into, you know, CBT therapy and all that, because that could be a whole nother podcast. But what I mentioned about, you know, feelings aren't right or wrong, then by saying that to your child, you're acknowledging that the way that they feel or the way that they, you know, are responding to whatever the circumstances is okay. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to feel your feelings, but it's not okay to do this, 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 or a better way might be this, this, this. So then when it does come down to like giving um, some teachable moments, that's how you do it because you don't want to say, well, that was a bad idea, but you might say next time, maybe do this. If they, even if they say, yeah, what I want to do is punch them back in the face, you know, and you say, okay, I hear you. And I pro- you probably feel like that's exactly what you want to do, but we know there's consequences to that. So maybe another option is just to hold your head up and, you know, puff your chest out, hold your hands and just let them know that they are not, they don't have power over you. And Mm -hmm. it's not easy. It takes practice, but that might be a way that we approach, you know, how we're going to help them through that situation. And that's just an example because, and, and I do want to mention too, that you can do all of these things with one child and it can be, you may have to take a different rep- approach with a, another yeah. child. And so every child's a little bit different. And anybody that has more than one kiddo could probably tell you. And I like to say, boy, it would be boring if they were all the same. But it does keep us on our toes, right? Oh, de- definitely. I think one of the, um, what I say to even adult adults that I work with is, your feelings are strongly connected to your thoughts. And if we were to, if we were to analyze your thoughts, your thoughts are closely connected to your worldview. So as a child and an adolescent and even adults, we're always constantly developing our worldview. So your feelings may not be facts, right? They may not be correlated to actual facts. You may feel a certain way when you, in a situation and somebody else could be in in the same situation and have experienced the same thing and they have a different perspective. What guides our perspective is our worldview, but especially as a kid and even as adults, it's how we feel about ourselves. So if you have a strong self-concept 
And a strong self-concept is not to be confused with being overconfident or being arrogant or being cocky. If you have a strong self-concept, you're somebody that can say, I know I'm good at this. And, and these are five things that I'm good at. And maybe these are two things that I need to improve on. But overall, you can look in the mirror and say, you know what, I, I like who I am. That's really hard for adolescents to do because there's so much going on from a physiological perspective with hormones. And then there's a lot going on developmentally and socially because that's that's the stage, that's the psychosocial stage where you start to navigate the world and you get feedback from other people outside of your immediate circle, your immediate family. And that feedback can sometimes be negative. Does it make it right or wrong? So when you talk about feelings, validate them because feelings are real. You can't argue with a feeling. If my feelings are hurt, even though Sarah didn't mean to hurt my feelings, my feelings are still hurt. It doesn't take away my feelings. But what we do in cognitive behavioral therapy and what a great thing to do is with with people, kids included, because kids are actually pretty smart. Sometimes they're smarter than adults, believe it or not. Right. And that's why I do what I do. I love it. Right. Right. I mean, they can boil something down into a sentence and you're like, man, I was just I was beating my head against the wall. And you just you just drop some wisdom on me and you're nine (laughs) years old. So it's like, But I think like helping them really feel secure, safe, but but confident, appropriately confident in themselves and who they are will guide, you know, their feelings, will help to guide their feelings. Because a lot of the times, and I don't know if it's generationally, there's a lot of, um, people that may that may pick up negative feelings about themselves based off of a situation that they may not have otherwise picked up because they feel so badly about yourself. So if you feel so badly internally about yourself, everything that happens outside is my fault because I'm bad and I'm flawed. Right. So it's our job to make sure that the message is not always telling a kid you're bad and you're flawed. Right. Um, it's, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that goes back to the question that you asked me about how do we help them be confident? How do we help them be resilient and go out into their day knowing that we can't be with them? And and that's exactly, you just hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what we're talking about. And one thing that's coming to my mind, you know, while, while, we're, while I'm listening to you is that I learned this and I've been trying to use this in my practice in everything that we say is or even think about because you can you can look at it two different ways in a circumstance. Tell yourself or tell ask your child, is it true? And number two, is it helpful? But we could even flip that in the way that we communicate and is what I'm saying true and is or is what I'm saying helpful? So when we do communicate with our child or they ask us a question, instead, how you build confidence is by saying, I'm going to just really go out there and be like, well, that's a dumb idea or what an ignorant, you're ignorant. Why would you think that way? But we don't build confidence that way. We build confidence by saying something that's helpful by encouraging them, but not going so far where we're like, you're the best, you know, no, you know, I mean, it could, you'd have to go 
pretty far to get to that point, but you want them to understand that it's okay to make mistakes and we're not all perfect, but there are certain things that we do expect and we have to approach it with kindness and approach it in a way that they, because if we say that to our child, like you're ignorant and then even if you follow it up with some really great advice, what do they remember you just said? You're ignorant. Yeah, that's all they hear. That's all they will remember about the situation that they were in. And so it really just comes down to like choosing your words. And that's why, like when I told you my example about how I put my fingers in my ears and I go, la, la, la. And it was kind of my way to kind of reset so that I didn't just react like, why were you doing that in the first place? You know, or why were you there? You know, like something like that. And it was just like, I had to kind of, it was my way to regroup. And so I like to, I would like to advise parents, like when you're in a situation where you're talking to your child and it's uncomfortable and you might be in the back of your mind thinking like that was really dumb, you know, don't say it, (laughs) you know, just (laughs) say, okay, you know, and then, you know, reset and then, you know, use better words because, you know, we used to say, oh, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. Words can hurt. Oh, I take a black eye any day over somebody telling me I was stupid or I wasn't good enough because the black eye will get better, but I'll always remember, you know, what, what you said and that. And my husband is a, a middle school teacher. So we have a lot of very interesting conversations oh, I bet. and um, a lot. And it, and, and it's funny because what he says to me is no one, nobody talks to these kids. So like I'll come in and, and he teaches health and phys ed. So he teaches the, 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 the chapter, which that's a whole nother, com- the chapter on depression and drug use, the chapter. Okay. Like that should be a whole, a whole marking period or a whole year. But anyway, and he says, what's interesting is no one like all day they're talked at. You should do this. You should do this. You have to do this. And he goes, I, I try to take a step back and say, how you doing today? Mm-hmm. Or, or what did you think of that? What was your opinion of that? Because I because they have they have opinions. Right. And sometimes they may not be. the. But he tries to talk to them and give them respect that we often kind of skip over as parents. It's like this is my house. You know, I take care of you. And, and we kind of don't look at them as. As people, we look at them as our kids. And sometimes I think it's helpful if you kind of just, you know, how, like, how are you? Or, you know, what do you think about that? Or how do you feel about that? Like, when's the last time? Because I'm thinking about it myself when I'm like, well, how did that make you feel? Or, well, I'm a shrink. So, of course, I'm going to, I'm probably going to do that too much. But my kids are like, stop asking me how I feel. But think about it. Like during those teenage years, how many times are you saying, you know, how you feeling? Or, or what, especially with the pandemic, um, you know, how you feeling? Or do you want to talk? Or, you know, my mom was also big too. And again, I swear she was ahead of her time. Some parents would probably kill me from saying this on the podcast. I went to very, um, I was very hard on myself. I was the kid that, um, again, due to my own trauma, right? I was very perfectionistic, very type A, and I was very hard on myself and um, always strived to, to do as best as I could. And my mom saw that. So there were times in my life where my parents did very well 
and were clean. And there were times when they weren't, but when my mom was doing well, she would give me literally like mental health days. And that's what she would call them. She'd mm-hmm. be like, you're, you're at your wit's end. Like you're, you're stressing out. I know you have this exam or that exam and, and you're like physically like not sleeping. Right. She goes, you, get, you know what? Let, if you want to talk to me about, it, let's talk about it, but like, you need a day, you know? So like just being able to kind of regroup and recognize and, and show our kids compassion, because I think we have forgotten how to show ourselves self-compassion. So how are we going to going to implement it onto someone else if we're constantly on, on, on the rat wheel ourselves. And I have to check myself a lot because I, I still am not self-compassionate, but I'm trying to be better with myself because another thing that, that we didn't cover is, is modeling. Yes. Because they're going to look at me. So if like my son's super competitive, very athletic, so he's whatever he had, he's usually, you know, he has a bad game. He's going to look at me you know, to see how I am that day, that's going to guide how he's going to feel about himself. So if he's all feeling bad about himself, I'm not going to say, oh, you missed that shot. And you missed that shot. Well, how did you miss that one? I'm not going to pile on, right? Because he's looking at me. Right. I'm going to say, you know what, buddy? Even Steph Curry had a bad day. Yes. LeBron James has bad games. Like, you know what? Sometimes having a bad game is actually going to help you later because you're going to work on that shot. Or you're going to try not to do that again. And it's okay to have a bad day and not be perfect because we don't strive for perfection, right? We just strive to be a better version of ourselves. So they're looking at you and how you're going to respond to them. And if they're already feeling bad about themselves, and let's say you're upset with them too, are you going to pile on and make them feel worse? Or are you going to kind of take a step back? reassure them of what they're good at and, and encourage them to dust themselves up and dust themselves off, get up and try again. I used to use the example about how Michael Jordan didn't make his freshman basketball team because my kids are older. So they remember Michael Jordan. And I used to use the same example. And by doing what you just said, it makes them feel valuable. You know, they feel by giving them respect because that's what we want. I mean, that's what modeling is about. Like you said, is, is treating others like you want to be treated. And there was uh, a person who said like a calm brain calms a brain. So you could even say like when they're wigging out, you don't want to wig out because then it's like, it's, you're not, it's. It's not helpful. Remember, is what I'm about to say to them, is it helpful? And so it's so important that you do that because that's what builds their confidence. You're not telling them like making excuses. We shouldn't, you know, and saying, hey, well, that ref was really bad or the coach didn't coach you right or maybe your shoes are too tight, whatever. We didn't make excuses. We said, yeah, everybody has a bad game. And, you know, and I love the idea that you said about giving him examples, because those are those are great, because a lot of times, you know, as parents, they don't they again, they know we love them. And so they know, okay, she's just saying that. But you're saying, look, it it happens to everybody. You're not alone in this. Absolutely. And I try to use you know, and it's hard. It's so hard to reel 
you know, being a parent, <laughs> no, people are concerned about the first 12 months. You ever realize that like at your baby shower, you get these little cards with advice, like sleep when the baby sleeps. And, yes. You know, you get all this, everybody cares the first, no one, it kind of stops and, and no one kind of holds our hand and, and, and says, look, you know, you're going to wish you were in those first 12 oh, months I again. Know. Sleep I know. <laughs> I, I've been in my office some days and, you know, I see those parents with the infant and they're tired and blah, blah, blah. And I just want to say, this is the, this is the easy part, you know, but I never say that because you know, it's all relative and I loved every stage, but, and there are challenges to everyone, but you're right. It, where's that manual? Where's I, I that? Read it. What is that? What to expect when you're expecting or what to expect in the first year? It's like, we need a, what to expect when they're starting to change and develop and become preteens and teenagers. At every stage. Like we need a, what to expect when expecting at, <clears throat> at every stage. But um, yeah, it's, it's definitely for me, I, I, I keep two things in my mind with my own kids. And, and I'll share one, one last story with you. I, I have a patient, adult, female that I see and very anxious. So, you know, when you start to, and I'm psychodynamically and, and family systems trained, even though I, I use CBT and I, but I always want to go back. Right. And I say to myself, um, your parents are always going to blame for something. We're, we're going to mess them up somehow. Let's just hope that we don't, we don't do so much damage. So in psychology, there's a phrase, you just have to be good enough. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be what we refer to as the good enough parent. And believe it or not, half of that is being present, is actually being physically present and being present when your kids need you. Um, but with this particular patient, high anxiety, and um, the referral is always different. You know, when you when you get an adult with anxiety, it may be, you know, you know, related to their job, related to their current relationship. But as you peel back the layers of the onion, because I've been working with this individual for about six months, we talked last night um, about how her parents talked to her. I don't know how we got there, but we got there. And she said, I always felt, and, and you said this earlier, I always felt like they knew what they had to say or what they should say. So they would, they would lead off if I made a mistake and they would lead off by saying, Hey, uh, Hey Jenny, you know, it's okay that you made that mistake. And, and they would start out and, and say what they're supposed to say and show the empathy. But then they would close by saying, well, you know what? You were never really good enough to do that anyway. Like, what made you think that you, right? Like, like, you know, that's not something you should have even went for. Like, why would you even try out for the volleyball team? You're not coordinated. So that's, that's what she remembered because everything was like a backhanded compliment or, or it was like a, it was like a, I'm going to teach you a life lesson, but I'm going to build you down. And at her core, you know, she kind of had a revelation last night where it was like, I don't feel good about myself. Like, I don't even know what I'm good at. I can't because the exercise I gave her was to tell me five things that she thinks that she's good at. Yeah. And she couldn't do it. And then that's how we got on the parent thing. So, so there's two things for me, it's self-concept, self-worth, making your kids feel worthy, not, not cocky, not arrogant, not saying that they're going to be the next, you know, and bead. That's not, 
like not giving them these unrealistic type of, of, of puffiness, like chest puffiness, Yeah, but giving them appropriate self-worth, identifying what they're good at and nurturing that. And then the second thing is just being honest with them. You know, there's no manual, like you said, right? Like after 12 months, they don't really care too much. You know, like it's kind of, you know, kind of the ball gets dropped. So just really being real with them and letting them know that you've been there and that, you know, I'm going to listen to you because I want to hear your experience and I want to be able to, to help you, but not necessarily fix you, I think, um, are the, are the, are two of the things, but they're, they're two really hard things, (laughs) um, as a parent that I think you, like we lose sleep over. (laughs) And it's, it's not too late. I know that there might be someone out there who's feeling like, wow, I've, I've messed up or I need to make a change. Again, like you said, we just have to be good enough. And I hope that everyone can take the information that you and I have talked about just sharing our own experiences as parents, as also professionals, and just being able to say, you know, it's okay. And maybe you're looking back and thinking, okay, there was a situation that maybe I didn't handle it very well. Or maybe you're sitting here listening to this and going, I'm doing it. I'm on it. I'm doing okay. But whatever it is, it's not too late to make some simple changes and just listen and don't be afraid to communicate and get a little uncomfortable when it comes to certain situations. And totally seek advice, right? Seek advice with a licensed clinical psychologist or your pediatrician and talk to them and don't be embarrassed to talk about your concerns for your child's mental health or even your own ability to manage their feelings, their reactions, their challenges. Totally agree. I'm with you hundred percent, Dr. Sarah. Well, thank you so much. I I can't tell you how grateful I am and how much fun it's been to have this conversation because we have, we're talking about something that's pretty serious. And yet I hope that we've been able to show people that we're all humans and we're just trying to raise good humans and uh, we just have to be good enough. Thank you again. And thank you. Don't forget to listen to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah wherever you like to listen to your shows like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thank you again, Dr. Utter. And I'm looking forward to having you back on the show in the future. Thank you so much.